Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 109 of the Chirps podcast from Birds on the Black. Tara Wellman, still out, still not here, uh, so I am still holding down the floor, I being Alex Crisofoli, but I am joined by a very special guest. You all know him uh, from Prospects After Dark and the, the star of Birds on the Black. I am with Kyle Reese. Kyle. How is it going? It's going well, Alex. I feel privileged to be a part of this with you. I love talking with you, bud. You too. I like now that we have we have pivoted to video. I can actually see you now. Uh, this is this is wonderful. Uh, I, I have, have no notes. We've done no prep for this because I know that's what that's what people want from Kyle Reese. They want him raw and unfiltered and uh, unedited. So this is like the. Uh, this will be like the version of that uh, of the movie American Pie that they couldn't show in theaters because it's just a little too on edge. That's 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 this episode of Chirps right here. Yeah, I'm uh, the the Shannon Elizabeth cut of Chirps. <laughs> yeah. well, I think it was more. I think the problem with the one they couldn't show in theaters is I think he humped the pie too long or, or, or something. <laughs> I, I, I had something to do with the. The scene with the pie. I have not seen that movie in a while. I can't imagine it holds up well. Uh, have you seen that movie in a while? No, God, no. I couldn't okay. tell you the last yeah. time I saw that movie. But the <laughs> fact that it might have been held out of theaters because the guy humped the pie a little too much. Yeah, that makes... All right, I understand that correlation now. It makes more sense. Well, that cut. I, you know, it's like before there was the Snyder cut, there was the... Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Hump the pie a little too long cut of American Pie that people demanded to see and and they got it. Um, uh, and this is the segue into we this episode. About- of, this is the segue into this episode of Chirp where we just talk about Marvel and DC movies. So uh, if you're not into that, you should. Yeah, do I, I, I was actually about to mention a Marvel movie. Uh, so we have we did you see the trailer for the Eternals? Yeah, I did. What do you think? I thought it was cool. Um, I, I have to be perfectly honest. I don't. I know next to nothing about the Eternals. I know the main guy um, whose name is escaping. I, I know they're like gods of some sort because you know they're like celestials, if I understand it correctly. Yeah. And I think my question is similar to a lot of other people, which is that this is, if I have the timeline correctly, after um, you know after Than after Infinity War and Endgame, and so we saw these people. We saw in Endgame Thanos basically saying, all right, what I did in Infinity War didn't work, so I'm going to... Uh, spoilers, everyone. I'll, I'll give you five seconds <laughs> to pause if you're, if you're listening. All right, so he basically said in Endgame, I'm going to just destroy everything and start over. Well, where were these guys? I, I think they're going to really have to explain that. Like, well, why were these people sitting idly by if they are, they are sound to be incredibly powerful and their help probably would have been appreciated. I'm anxious to find out how they do it all. You know, that is, uh, they're actually one group that I don't know much about in, in the comics. Uh, I know that they aren't exactly Marvel's answers to the DC characters, but I know they have their own group. Uh, I think they're called the Squadron Supreme. Uh, but they, they have a lot of characteristics that are similar to uh, the DC characters of lore. So I honestly, I'm anxious to learn more about them. I, I think that at first they were supposed to be 
Marvel step around to having mutants in their in their in their world, and now they own the mutants again. So I, I'm anxious to see how they incorporate it all. And yeah, just like you said, how uh, how they reason them not being around when uh when the snap you know gets over, overturned, as I'm in baseball terms now. Yeah, they have a lot to answer for. That's that's for yeah. sure. And. Um... Well, maybe they maybe they have a good excuse. I don't know, but uh, to to bring this to baseball, I, I believe it was the opening night of minor leagues, which is a big deal for you because you obviously watch a lot of minor league baseball, and especially with the fact that we did not have minor league baseball last season because of the pandemic. So it's basically been two seasons. Um, you you were basically going a full year without seeing any minor league baseball, and right when it began. And of course, I was oblivious that this was happening, that minor league baseball just kicked off. And right when it began, I was like blowing you up on DMs trying to talk about the Snyder cut with you. And you were like, leave me alone. I'm not, <laughs> this is not the time. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was just, obviously I was just kidding, but it was like, and it's funny because I really wanted to talk about the Schneider cut. Like, None of my friends have any appreciation for any of that stuff. So I'll start talking about it and they just look at me dumbfounded. And I'm finally getting a chance to find my, rediscover my own personal world, my own personal minor league world. And uh, the only other thing I really want to talk about is a seven hour long movie that's divided into 14 chapters with, with you. And I just had so many heartstrings being pulled out at one time. I didn't know how to handle it. Well, I liked it. Um, uh, I, it took me about four sittings to watch it, and uh, I, I, I thought I don't know if they needed to use the Gladiator score every time Wonder Woman uh, was on screen and go into slow motion. But other than that, I, 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 I very much enjoyed it. The, yeah, that uh, honestly, my my one complaint. I, well, not my one because the initial version I hate it, but that that Zack Schneider Gladiator. Uh, theme for Wonder Woman is like my least favorite thing on earth. I don't know why I, I never liked it. Not since the Wonder Woman, not since her debut in Batman vs Superman or whatever. Like I did not like it at all. It's just it's too rock and roll. I don't know. I, I don't know at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, who who are you watching tonight? I, I know I know you have several computers going on right now watching the minor leagues. Who who we have going? Yeah, right now. Uh, Peoria is playing Wisconsin, and Logan Gragg, a Cardinals ninth-round pick from 2019, is on the bump for, for Peoria. Um, and then the okay. other game that's on right now is Springfield versus San Antonio, and uh, Springfield's up 5-1. to one. It's the third Cardinals uh, fourth-round pick in 2019. Andre Payante is on the bump for uh, the, the Springfield Cardinals. And then Memphis is either rained out or rain delayed. And the same thing is going on with Palm Beach. So there's only two minor league games on currently. Okay. And, and when you're watching these games, I, I assume you're focusing almost entirely on individual performance and you have no sort of vested, like, like if Peoria were to lose to Wisconsin, like you don't have trouble falling asleep at night because Peoria lost a game or, or same with Springfield and Memphis, I assume. And does anyone really, I mean, like, like explain your relationship with the sport. I'll be honest. I, I couldn't tell you most nights 
Well, I could tell you most nights. If you were to ask me the next morning after a full bill of minor league baseball where Memphis, Springfield, Peoria, and Palm Beach all played, if you were to ask me maybe 14 hours later what each team did, I would probably guess right if they won or lost. I will say 60% of the time. I I invest so little, and it's probably not fair, uh, but I invest so little into the, the win-loss record of the team. Uh, if they win, if they lose, I, I'm definitely squaring in. I'm definitely keying in on performances uh, rather than wins and losses or rather than stat sheet outcomes. Uh, and, and more so now than ever, for whatever reason that is. But yeah, like very little do I do I actually, and it's terrible, but do I actually care if any of those teams win? It's It's more gauging situations and how players are doing within those situations. Uh, within a game. Well, speaking of that, I don't want to repeat any of uh, questions of that, that very good discussion you had with the two Bens on the Cardinals off day podcast. Uh, but anyone catching you by surprise so far, and I know it's still very early, but whether it's at Peoria or Springfield or wherever, where so I know a lot of people are talking about Plummer, who yeah. I, I think um, Nick Plummer was was he a high school player from Michigan? Am I remembering this correctly? Ohio, I believe it might have been Michigan. Ohio, now, okay. now you got me second guessing myself. Okay, but he was a first round draft pick and was at 17, 18. When was that? That would have been a uh, twenty sixteen or no twenty fifteen. Oh, twenty oh no twenty fifteen. Oh okay. I'm sorry, and he, it was Michigan, but okay. it was it was twenty fifteen. And see, this is where I'm getting in trouble. As you start talking about years, I've never been good with years, anyways. But um, specifically, now that one Obviously minor, I'm league, not. Yeah. Now that one minor league season's been robbed from us, I have no like I can't keep everything straight. So I completely understand where you're coming from there. But it sounds as though he has sort of found a footing with with Springfield, right? It, uh, um, and he's he's hitting for power, getting on base a lot. And um, you you tell me if this is if this is correct. But you know, first round pick. I, I don't want to ever call someone in the minor leagues a bust. But people, it looked like it wasn't going to happen for for this guy. And and right now he, he's playing very well. I mean, I don't know how else to put it other than that. Is that how would you describe what what we're seeing from Nick Plummer? Yeah, I would say that's accurate, and I would say that I'm not going to get into it until the end, the later, the latter part of this episode. My chirp of the week uh, centers around Nick oh, Plummer. Excellent. Uh, but what? But real fast, like the the impressive thing is his body's in better shape. You can tell he's not a big guy. He's probably five foot ten, but he's stout. And his swing is shorter. You know, you can you can see the quickness through the zone. Um, you know, like I, it's it's just the mechanical changes that this young man has made to be a better player uh, are are evident. Uh, and he's always had um, an understanding of the strike zone. You know, that was one of the things that interested the Cardinals. You know, when they decided to draft him uh, in 2015, I believe 23rd overall. I, I think it was 23rd overall. He and Delvin were both 23rd overall. Uh, but, uh, I mean, well, yeah. Anyways, uh, you, you see all these things. You know, he was a patient hitter. He always he always showed the ability to walk and understand the strike zone. 
Uh, it was just a matter of how it would all come together, if it would all come together. And he's put in that extra little bit of work to his body and his mind. That's how he spent his offseason, uh, his year-long offseason, um, getting healthy and getting his body and mind right. And he is thriving in Springfield. He's been probably Springfield's most consistent hitter. And he's in that mode right now where even when he isn't necessarily getting base hits, he's hitting the ball hard. Uh, we saw that tonight. A couple base runners on, and he smokes the ball at the second baseman, and the second baseman can't handle it. Uh, more than likely, as he goes up the ladder, that's not going to continue. Uh, but you hit the ball hard, and you kind of hit the ball all over the field like he does, and good things happen. So it's been really fun. It's been really cool to watch him have success, uh, especially after a young man gets written off you know, by a fan base or forgotten or is the, the butt of every joke about uh, failure uh, from a draft pick. So, yeah, it's cool. Would would you say he has a real path to to the majors at this point, or is that not something you even want to speculate on? I would say that there is a path to the major leagues for him, and it's made clear now as opposed to where it once wasn't. Uh, it doesn't hurt that now, since the Cardinals have cleared out a lot of their outfielders, and some of the outfielders that they have around aren't effective at all, and really, the only person between him and a major league debut is Lars Newtbar, who's currently hurt, and maybe Juan Yepes, who was just promoted to AAA. I mean, Counter Capel is an outfielder who's kind of interesting. Um, uh, but other than that, like, I would suspect that Nick Plummer's probably the next outfielder to get a call to AAA. And then if he continues to hit there, if Lars Newtbar gets healthy and doesn't continue to hit, uh, if Connor Cable continues to hit how he is and the Cardinals need an outfield, an outfielder, yeah, I, I could definitely see them getting aggressive with him. They're going to, you know, after this year, they're going to have to put him on the 40-man to protect him from the Rule 5 if he keeps hitting. So uh, there is there is a reason to show a little bit of urgency with him if he's raking. Interesting. Uh, that's very interesting. It's it's nuts that that was a 2015 draft pick. Um uh, and when I said 2017, 2018, as I was saying that, I was like, wait, that's not right. <laughs> like, because Delvin Perez, he was for Delvin Perez and Delvin Perez was probably 16 or 17. Yeah. Yeah. Delvin Is Perez, right? uh, okay. Delvin Perez, Dakota Hudson and Dylan Carlson were 2016. Okay. Okay. Um, r- really quick. Uh, I, I want to ask you about your setup that I'm seeing behind you because I, oh, no. I'm under the impression you're sitting in your living room. I am. Yeah. Over each shoulder you seem in your living room to have two dry erase boards <laughs> in, in, my t- what? What? I in, in between the dry erase I, what is happening just tell, tell me what's happening behind you right now <laughs> i regret <laughs> i regret that this is on video i knew i should the minute it popped up and i was like oh there's video i knew i should have turned it off so I should probably tell you the best part about this is I'm not sitting on my couch. I'm sitting on my floor because it's easier for me to go yeah. back and forth between laptops if I'm on the floor uh, rather than like perched over on my ch- from the couch to my my uh, my table here. Uh, so what I have, Alex, behind me, uh, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. What I have behind me are the two whiteboards that I do all of the dirty 35 brainstorming on. 
so oh, okay. as I point to this one, which is behind me and to my right, uh, that's usually where I do like the organizational depth chart, like my own personal organizational depth chart. And then this one over here, mm -hmm. over my left shoulder, is where I start to do like general rankings and uh, my own little personal movers and shakers. And then out of camera, what I'm staring at to my left is a smaller board, uh, a smaller whiteboard. Uh, and on that whiteboard, Rain Man likes to put what's close to his uh, his 35. Uh, so there, there's usually about 50 names on that uh, to that I draw from the brainstorming board over here. And then <laughs> between <Yeah>. the... the <laughs> so that would be my next question. What What is that in, in between the two whiteboards? Because uh, I so can't my quite tell. It looks like a... <laughs> Like an album cover or, or something? I feel like I'm looking at like a uh, Bell and Sebastian album. Well, what, what is that? It looks like the, the uh, If You're Feeling Sinister album cover from here, but I know it's not. Uh, so at the St. Louis Art Museum, my favorite painting is something called Sadak in Search of the Waters of Oblivion uh, by a Renaissance mm. painter named John Martin. I believe the painting was done in 1812 or 1816. Uh, and the, at the St. Louis Art Museum, they have the original copy of it, and it's humongous. I want to say it's, you know, eight feet by 10 feet, or uh, it, it's huge. Uh, so when I first moved into my apartment, I'm in the same apartment I've been in for 10 years. When I first moved into my apartment, uh, I bought this. And naturally, because I am just so dumb, I... I knew it wasn't going to be big, but I didn't realize how small it was going to be when I bought it. Uh, I just, I got to, I went to like the extra large size and I thought, all right, sure, I'll buy it. And I guess I paid for the frame more than I paid for anything. But uh, it, uh, it that I got mm -hmm. that and I wanted my favorite painting in my apartment. And it used to be above the television, but then I got a bigger television and a bigger TV stand. And then I moved a Christmas tree in here so I could have purple lights up all year. And I... Uh, move Sadak from that wall to this wall. And uh, that's what's going on back there. Thank you, Alex. Uh, and I imagine that this is okay. captivating for the, the audience that's listening at home. Well, speaking of those listening at home, you you all can't see, but I can. I, it looks like Coinside's number one up there. If I'm, if I, if, if <laughs> that's I'm right, Ricky Coinside. You know, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been really impressed with Ricky with what Ricky did. Uh, you know, right in his picture out of the University of Tulsa. Uh, he he's done amazing, same kind of thing, you know. Reinvented his body and uh, introduced a changeup to his uh, curveball, slider, uh, two seamer, four seamer, split finger, knuckleball arsenal. He that's seven wow. pitches he throws. That's quite an amazing repertoire. And the fact that he's from Tulsa, I'm I'm shocked. I haven't heard uh, Medlock talk much about him yet. But uh, uh, speaking of of uh, players who were once kind of at this level and are now dazzling us at this level, Tyler O'Neill has been, at least from a results standpoint, nothing short of awesome lately. Uh, the, I, I mean, he's been back from the IL less than a week, and I, I believe he's hit four or five home runs um, and, and pretty much picking up, picking up right where he left off. And this is what we always heard about him when he was in Memphis, uh, like he would get sent down to Memphis and he would immediately start raking. And it was like, well, what do we do with this guy? Because he has such a hole in his swing at this level where he can be exposed by better pitchers. At least that seemed to be the case at the time. 
but he was obviously had, it seemed at least from someone of my knowledge of the minors, which is not great, but it seemed like he had nothing really left to learn there. Um, and it was frustrating because he was getting hurt a lot. So we couldn't quite put together a full season of Tyler O'Neill. And now we're kind of, uh, hopefully we're, we might be able to see that this year. And certainly he's on a tear right now. Um, he's, he's also walking at less than, I think, 3%, which is, you know, right on his profile. But I think the most important thing is, though, that he, he really is like filling in that Aaron Judge comp that, you know, people used to say way back in the day that he had that, he had that type of power. Uh, and, and we are seeing that right now. I mean, I mean, those home runs he hit in Arizona were just absolute bombs. And he's certainly been capable of hitting bombs in years past. But do you think we're seeing a different, more complete Tyler O'Neill? Or is this just like, yeah, he's going to be what we've always expected of him, which is a guy who's going to hit home runs if someone is going to leave a, you know, a change up across the plate, which is what we saw a few times this week. And he's going to strike out a ton and, and probably struggle to have an on base much above 300. But obviously we can live with that because he plays good defense in the outfield. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, basically like- it, it, our, our, go ahead. No, to your point, um, you know, it was about two years ago now at this point or within the last two years that um, Fangraphs wrote a great article and, you know, Obviously, Tyler O'Neill is one of my favorite Cardinal prospects, now my favorite Cardinal players. Uh, when you watch him at the minor leagues, you were always wowed by his athleticism. And also, yeah, he struck out a lot, but the things that plagued him at the major league level did not plague him at the minor league level. Like, you know, early on, he wasn't susceptible. Well, he was susceptible at the major league level to breaking pitches low and away. At the minor league level, he wasn't doing that. Uh, he'd tee off a pitch in the dirt on a, a you know, a one-two slider, he'd be able to go into the dirt uh, opposite field and put it opposite field, you know, in the opposite box and put it opposite field. Uh, sure, he'd get beat with some heat up in the zone, but a lot of times at the minor league level, they were too afraid to even go there because if you missed that spot, uh, he'd punish it. And to me, it just seems like he's he's buying into his minor league process. What I was going to say is within the last two years, Fangraphs wrote an article that Tyler O'Neill is everything all at once. I think that that was the headline. And I admired that because all of the things that I was trying to say about Tyler O'Neill at that time kind of were rolled in to that one article. And, and it was just saying, you know what? He's kind of a great fielder, but he's also sometimes a bad fielder and there he's kind of a patient hitter, but he's also very susceptible to, to, to striking out. He's kind of a power hitter, uh, but it's not as big of power as maybe you'd suspect. He might flash the power, but it might not be consistent. Uh, you know, he, he's a better hitter than what you would think, but as long as he's hitting for power, he's probably not going to be as good of a hitter as he's capable of. And the, uh, the, the Fangraphs article is just covering all that. And, you know, you you introduced this this conversation that we're going to have about Tyler O'Neill by saying all of these things, all of the things that everybody is talking about right now. You know, is he just the strikeout guy? Uh, are we seeing the development of him? Uh, it, these majestic home runs, is this here to stay? Is this a streak? Uh, like, what is going on with him? And I think that 
you know, taking the cue from Fangraphs that did such a great job of being concise of all of the thoughts that I had leading into that is I think he's all of these things. I don't think he's, I, you know, I never thought he was Randall Gritchick. He's better than Randall Gritchick. He's a better hitter with a better eye that can do more with, with, with less to hit with. And he's, he's like the next step above Randall Gritchick, you know, but with his type of hitter, he's going to be streaky. You'll notice that rhythm is a big thing for him at the plate. And you can tell when he's out of rhythm, you know, he'll start, uh, he'll start guessing with that, that front foot, his front timing mechanism, and he'll start getting out of whack with his bat on his shoulder. And I've also noticed, and I went back and watched a bunch of the gifts that I had that when he's swinging the bat big, like a big loopy and no one else can see it except for you. But when he's up there before he gets in the set position, before he gets the bat on his shoulders, he'll kind of swing the bat with two hands and like a looping aggressive motion. Uh, it's not like fast, but it's it's big and wide. And when he's doing that, you can tell he's a little bit more relaxed at the plate and he's feeling it. And I think that's a big cue. I think I think all of that is to say that he is reliant on feel and uh, trusting himself and trusting his process maybe more than your average superstar would be. And because of that, I think that what we're seeing now is probably the the best version of Tyler O'Neill. Uh, we've already seen the worst version of Tyler O'Neill, and I think more than likely uh, to hedge that he's somewhere between the two with those other two, those other two extremes happening frequently in and out over 600 plate appearances. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I was always a a doubter just because um, maybe I've been slower to ad- adapt to like this sort of profile that is a little bit more prevalent in baseball than what was deemed uh, a good batting profile 15, even 10 years ago, I would say. But especially on a team like this, where it's, it's not, it's not a great offensive team. I I don't, I don't think that's controversial at all. It's not terrible, but it's by hardly a, a, a great offensive team. His power certainly is, is when he's not in the lineup, you notice. Yeah. And so, and so having him back there has been nice. You know, you brought up Randall Gritchick and I just thought of, I mean, I, I'm imagining a world where uh, you have an outfield of Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader and Randall Gritchick. That is the hunkiest outfield in the history of baseball. I mean, Dylan Carlson's no slouch either, but, and, and certainly no, I, I mean, Gosh, yeah, I, I don't even want to disparage Dylan like that because he's he's also a very good looking man. But uh, but not, but yeah, those three guys. Could you imagine an outfield with them? Nothing would compare to that. It's GQ style, you know. Like all three of them are stylish. All three of them are like uh, something you would find on the uh, the the front of a, a GQ or something like that. And you know, Dylan's more down home. So uh, yeah, from a high profile sex appeal level, Alex, I think you're dead on. <laughs> Uh, Dylan has a, I I guess more of a thing where he doesn't, uh, his vibe is I'm not trying as hard as those other three guys. Um, and and that's not a, neither a knock nor a, nor a compliment. That's just what I get from him. Um, but I'm still a a very good looking man. Um, he, he, he hit his first home run. He hit his first home run earlier this week. If I recall, uh, fourth of the season, and it was his first home run since April seventh. 
so he basically went six, seven weeks w- without hitting a home run after kind of starting the season on a on a on a mini tear. What would if you can call a you know five days of baseball a, a tear? But w- was that something? he did in the minors I, I mean i know he pretty much tore it up wherever he went in the minors but is that uh what was what was his i guess like power profile like in the minors he uh, like he, cause he was never he was never a guy who was expected to hit 30 home runs right it was inside you know his his success is going to come down to his power success is going to come down to you know bat speed because he's when he was in double a in 2019 and also in AAA when he finished the season in 2019, he would produce big, big, big fly balls for home runs. But he he's a hitter. You know, he's definitely hitter first, power next. That doesn't mean he can't put the jolt in Noah baseball because he can't. But surviving in at-bats and trying to do whatever he can to get on base is his profile. He's not, he's not as scrappy as... Uh, as Tommy Edmond is, you know, he, he's not going to just kind of like slap the ball over the place. Like that's not him. He's a little bit more controlled up there. He's a little bit more uh, powerful in that, that aspect of his approach. But as far as like his power profile, I, I Carlson was always interesting because leading in, you know, drafted in 2016 and then immediately started in the Gulf coast league. And then the Cardinals, he was one of the first hitting prospects that the Cardinals got extra aggressive with. You know, he was at Peoria before most hitters would be, you know, 19-year-old in Peoria, 20-year-old in Palm Beach. So while he wasn't necessarily lighting the world on fire, he was holding his own at about a league average clip at these very, very tough leagues, including a pitcher-friendly Palm Beach. So it really wasn't until he got to to double a at Springfield where we got to see his full profile uh, and also his, his developed body. Cause at that point he's t- finally, t- you know, a late 20, early 21 kind of come into one. So that's when you first start seeing the power and Texas league is, is a, a, a powerful, you know, there's usually a little bit more hitting there than in the Florida state league or the former Florida state league. Uh, so I would say that with Dylan Carlson, he was always do what you got to do to get on base and kind of survive at the level first and then put it together once you've survived. Uh, and then at Springfield, he was given a chance to kind of, uh, after he'd done all the surviving at these tough levels, given a chance to kind of blow up and it happened. Uh, I think, I think what happened with Dylan, right, is he was, he was really solid at the beginning of the year and was really starting to come into his own. And then the Cardinals rightfully put him in the two spot. And, you know, I think he understood in the two spot, his job was to do whatever he could to get on in front of Goldie and Arenado. And I'm willing to wager everything that every at-bat wasn't necessarily about doing damage. It was about getting on base so those two guys could do damage behind him. And more than likely, he was just in his routine, had no idea that he wasn't producing extra base hits. And it probably wasn't until somebody mentioned it to him uh, because he's just doing his job in the spot that he's doing his job in uh, and being pretty successful minus a, a, a low slug and a low ISO. And eventually just thought, oh, hey, I should probably try to hit for a little bit of power. And that's probably what's happening now. And I know that that seems uh, like contrary to how maybe a major leaguer would hit. But this is 
he is that baseball IQ where it's it's about filling a role and doing what you have to do in that role and taking advantage of opportunities presented to you. So that's a long rant to just say that uh, uh, I think that what we're going to see is all again, all of those minor league things happening at once with this young man in his first major league season where there's going to be times where he's just holding his own because it's a tough level mm-hmm. for somebody like him who's kind of been rushed through the system a little bit, but also those those moments where he blows, where he's the most electric player on the field. Well, he's he's such a natural-looking ball player. Uh-huh. Um, we were talking about Tyler O'Neill, a, a, a player like Tyler O'Neill who is very exciting, um, uh, but almost one of the things that makes Tyler O'Neill's ex- O'Neill exciting is his his weaknesses are very obvious. They are, are are kind of staring at you in the face. Whereas Dylan Carlson, um, shoot, I, I don't I don't want to use the term five tool player, but it's it's hard to think of something that he doesn't do well, or at least something that you don't feel as though there's potential for him to do very well. Uh, he's an excellent base runner. He, uh, he you know. What you said about Tyler O'Neill earlier about how he can, you know, look great at times in the outfield and and sometimes he look not so great. I, I guess you could maybe say the same about Carlson, but I would say he's looked very very good in center field um, when when Harrison Bader has been out. He good enough arm. Um, I I and I felt I remember feeling the same way about Stephen Piscotti when he first came up in 2015, which is like, oh, this guy belongs. Like this is a guy who who looks so comfortable hitting at this level, um, and 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 so that even though they're very different players, that's someone who kind of reminds me of Dylan Carlson. Whereas he just has this kind of flow of like a very natural baseball player. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, up until that breakout year in 2019, I always thought that he was going to be some version of Stephen Piscotty. Um, just the mm. way he handled the bats at such a young age, you know, uh, to be 18 and 19 at, you know, in the Midwest league and at the Florida state league, those are, those are big asks. And for him to hold his own and also have those like natural baseball skills. Um, it, it just, it screamed that Steven Piscotty to me. And it wasn't until he got his body in better shape that, it, you know, got his body in better shape, finally felt comfortable playing professional baseball at Springfield that it was like, you could see it right away from the first at bat he took in double A that he was just, he had taken the next step in his development. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not good at comps, uh, but I do think Steven Piscotti as a baseline comparison or a projection or uh, uh, for Dylan Carlson, I think it's solid. I, I think that, you know, a, a year ago, back before, or two years ago, back before he made his major league debut, people were like, who does this guy compare to? They were talking about MVP Cody Bellinger. They were talking about uh, all of these all-pro, borderline Hall of Fame type players and the, the the showstoppers of modern baseball. And I just said, mm-hmm. just to see what kind of reaction it would get, Nick Markakis. You know, what if he's Nick Markakis? And no one's in, introduced, like no one's excited about that. But everyone forgets that I think it was in 2005 or 2007, whichever his first couple of years were. Uh, he was one of the best outfielders in baseball, and he played 16 years in the majors uh, on some, you know, not championship teams, but on some really good teams. And 
that is such a valuable thing. And sure, it's not Nolan Arenado. And sure, it might not be Paul Goldschmidt. But you can't really ask for I mean, to even ask for that is it's going way off the reservation and asking for too much. Uh, and, and I think that's the type of player he is. He's just going to be really solid and really good for a long time with a couple seasons that'll, you know, be 120 WRC plus plus seasons, maybe even getting close to 140 or 150 here and there. Uh, but mm-hmm. he's just a baseball player that's going to stick around for as long as he wants to stick around. Yeah. Um, that's good to hear you say that because that's kind of always been been my impression of him as well. So it's nice to see, I guess, a more seasoned eye like yourself uh, uh, kind of uh, reaffirm that. Uh, so uh, let me ask you, Jose Adalas Garcia, is this surprising you? Um, um, because I, I know we're dumping on the Cardinals a lot for this, but correct me if I'm wrong, he got kind of like the Aledmus Diaz treatment from the Rangers, right? Like he got DFA'd and no one, um, n- no one picked him up, and so he. Yeah. St- stayed with the team and um now all of a sudden is is he still leading the al in home runs i know he was last i checked but yeah well, I know he's close some, at least yeah at some point last week he was uh i had a busy weekend so i i've honestly like i missed a lot of minor league baseball i missed nearly all of major league baseball yeah. but when you have a three-day weekend the last thing you want to be doing is checking up on the texas rangers so yeah. that's <laughs> yeah fair enough Fair enough. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I, I do it when I on normal two-day weekends for sure, but definitely not on three-day weekends. Um, am I surprised? Yeah. And anybody who tells you they're not surprised is a liar. The Rangers are surprised for your very for the very point you brought up. They DFA'd him in February, and then he didn't even break camp with them. It wasn't until somebody got hurt two or three weeks later, whenever it was, that they're like, I guess we'll bring Adalis Garcia up. Uh, you know, if, if he had impressed him in spring training, he would have been with the big club. There was not, there wasn't a reason to hold him back. Uh, that being said, uh, I do think that he, he always has this potential in him, but I also know that he's a very streaky hitter. Uh, and I know that he goes on these tears and it's usually later in the year. Uh, in 2019, it was in August, I think from August until, uh, the first week of September, cause that's usually when the minor league season ends. Uh, it used to end. Now it's going to end in October. Um, but uh, yeah, usually from like that August of 2019, he was a monster. And I want to say June of 2018, he was the best uh, the best hitter in the Cardinals system in June of 2018 and August of 2019. He was just dangerous and and lights out and all of the, I, he was just the, the anchor of a middle of any order. So what I'm anxious to see is what happens when I don't know. We'll say two weeks. When he has his 0 for 12 drought, that will come. It just will. It's it's the same thing with Tyler O'Neill. He's going to have an 0 for 12 drought. It's just what happens next. And I think there's reason to believe that Jag is going to have the opportunity to rebound. I, I He's playing with a different flair, a different excitement, a different energy, a different confidence. And that can carry you. But I also know that I've seen a bunch of highlights, and I think Quinn posted a highlight reel of some of the swings that he's taken when he doesn't hit home runs. And that was always what we saw at AAA with him, where he was taking these big, healthy cuts uh, and missing a lot of breaking pitches and also missing a lot of fastballs. Uh, And from what I understand, that's been happening a little bit more frequently and a little bit more frequently and a little little bit more frequently with him. So it's just a matter of if he's going to adjust and if American League pitchers have adjusted to him. But it's cool to see. And you cannot... 
You can't fault the Cardinals for it. I mean, you can because they let him go for $100,000. Uh, but that, I think people focus on that. And if you really want to fault the Cardinals, you say, well, they could have claimed him three months ago. Uh, that, like that, That's what I'd focus on. And even then, don't because the Rangers didn't think anything of it and neither did any of the other teams in Major League Baseball. So uh, just like you said about Aledmi's, this one gets a pass in my book. Uh, and we'll see what Jeremy Hazelbaker Garcia is doing in two months. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I, 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 that I, I feel as though you've used that, that term before the Jeremy Hazelbaker Garcia. I, I like it a lot. Uh, uh, it rolled off your tongue very well, which <laughs> made me think that wasn't the first time you've said it. Um, uh, and, and Mundo Sosa, um, I, I feel as though I almost owe him an apology because I, I know when Paul DeYoung got hurt, I was like, this is not good. But like, I, and I know people have issues with Paul DeYoung, but he's a, he's a very dependable fielder. And I, I felt as though his hitting would rebound at least a little bit, you know, and he was, he would become, you know, a, a very respectable hitter, especially for the shortstop position, which is what he's always been eventually. Um, and Sosa has cooled down at the plate, at least um, since he came up, which I think everyone expected because he's never been a great hitter. Uh, and he was riding like a crazy BABIP um, or whatever, but his defense has been very good, at least to the eye test. And I, I, I don't think it's just the eye test because I think from reading kind of after the fact, I feel as though I should have been doing this reading before he came up, but doing all the reading after the fact, it sounds like his glove was always pretty, at least somewhat well-regarded. Um, and I, I was very concerned about the car, about the organizational depth at shortstop, but I feel a lot better about that sort of backup plan now seeing him play than I did uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, or whenever DeYoung first, first exited the scene. Were, were you expecting Sosa to, to fit in this well? I've always thought that he'd be a really good utility player. I didn't expect his bat mm -hmm. to be this aggressive. Um, you know, so at the minor league level, what teams started doing with Edmundo Sosa was throwing him a bunch of fastballs up in the zone early in counts and then just polishing him off with breaking pitches uh, uh, you know, as the count progressed. And every once in a while, Edmundo Sosa would hit one of those breaking pitches really hard. And he'd get a double or a single or a home run generally to opposite field. Uh, and sometimes they try to sneak a fastball by him late into account, and he'd hit that ball for a home run, specifically low in the zone. So what's impressed me the most about Edmundo Sosa so far in his major league stint is that he's handling the high heat better than I ever remember him doing. You know, he has that inside-out swing, and it works well to put that high heat to right field as a right-handed swinger. So those are all positives. He's taking advantage of this. Uh I'm same kind of thing with Jag. I don't think that this is sustainable for him. Uh, I'm anxious to see how teams start adjusting to him. Uh, but I think above all else, he's proven that he should get some starts at shortstop uh, when DeYoung is back, whether that be to spell DeYoung or for whatever reason, uh, one way or the other, to make sure Paul DeYoung doesn't play 
162 straight games every year. Uh, I think maybe that's the most important thing. It's it's the Andrew Kisner effect, uh, but with Paul DeYoung instead of Yadier Molina. And again, maybe on a team like the Dodgers, Edmundo Sosa, you know, a loaded roster, Edmundo Sosa could be an everyday shortstop. You know, maybe he's a Cesar Torres uh, of, uh, you know, those Tony La Russa teams, 2000 and whatever year that was, where, uh, you know, they had a, a amazing lineup. And then it was like, all right, we're going to put his Torres uh, in the in the eight hole, and he's going to play a lights out shortstop. Like maybe he's capable of something like that. Uh, and hopefully they can get a couple more weeks out of this version of him. But he was he was too much of a free swinger at the minor league level for it to stay consistent uh, at the major league level. Uh, and and I I will say that. You know, that was 2019, the 2019 version of Edmundo Sosa, the last time there was organized minor league baseball. And it seems like some of that free swinging is gone. But I think that right now the free swinging works to his advantage, specifically in this lineup, because it doesn't really seem like there are a lot of free swingers in the lineup. Uh, Sure, you know, Bader swings out a lot. But, you know, Bader strikes out a lot. O'Neal strikes out a lot. They've got guys who strike out a lot. But none of them are real free swingers. Like, they're not up there just swinging crazy on three straight pitches a lot. They, you know, they're kind of hunting for good pitches to hit. And uh, Edmundo Sosa used to just swing at everything. And kind of like Jag used to just swing at everything. And if you're getting a good pitch every at-bat, then if you're swinging at everything, you're going to make contact with it. So I think that the balance that that approach brings to this Cardinal lineup that's kind of more geared towards uh, being patient and hunting your pitch works really well in this instance for him. So, uh, you know, like I, I gifts asked when we were doing prospects after dark at the beginning of the year, Cardinals gifts asked me like, what's the optimal role for, for Edmundo Sosa. And I said, you know, uh, whenever you got an off day uh, coming up or you got a travel day, he's perfect for that. Uh, if you've got a guy who th- throws sinkers, like I would key in Edmundo Sosa for that type of pitcher and uh, whenever you want a kid to just go up there and swing at everything, put Edmundo in because sometimes that's valuable, uh, as crazy as that sounds in modern baseball. Well, I had uh, Ben Clemens of Fangraphs was on last week. And after we got done recording, he, he mentioned, uh, by the way, do you know who's hit the ball the hardest of any Cardinal this year? It's been Edmundo Sosa, uh, at least in, in one of his at-bats. And it, it reminded me of... Didn't Rangel Ravello do that a few years ago when yeah. he hit that bomb against the Rockies? Like, yeah. uh, he had the highest exit velocity of any Cardinal that season, or maybe I'm inflating that a little bit. I believe that was the same home run where Danny Mack had, like, the most ridiculous home run call uh, just all over the place, like kitchen sink uh, sort of uh, yeah. hootenanny of a home run call, <laughs> if I recall. Um so that does make sense, uh, the free swinging um, that would result in, I guess, something uh, of a, a result like that. Um, but no, he's been very, uh, again, I feel as though I owe him an apology and, and the organization just slightly uh, because I questioned the depth that they had built at that position. But, and, I, and I do feel much better about it. But speaking of the organization, I, I should note that we are taping this before just before Tuesday's game against the Dodgers begins, we have John Gant going against David Price. Um, Cardinals lost, again, pretty badly last night to the Dodgers. Um, they're doing a great job of beating bad teams, and they're, which is 
uh, you know, I'm not trivializing that. That's a very good thing to do. Um, but they're also doing a pretty good job of looking not so great, like almost like they don't belong in the same league against a lot of very good teams, whether first the Padres and just one game against the uh, Dodgers. But yeah, the, the, they're kind of going back to what they were, uh, I guess, the first two weeks of the season where they were getting be- not only getting beaten, but they were getting beaten badly. Um, and, I, and I think their run differential has kind of reflected that as it's making its way almost back towards zero. Uh, does this feel like a playoff team to you? Compared All to, things considered, weak yeah, division. I was going to say, compared to the, some of the teams that they've played, it does. Uh, but it doesn't seem like a team that's got a mm-hmm. run in them. I think back to that Milwaukee series where they took two of three from Milwaukee. And the difference in that series was that Milwaukee made more mistakes. And then I think about the difference between mm-hmm. the Cardinals and the Cubs. And the difference was the Cardinals made more mistakes. And it seems to me like the Cardinals are the exact team that would beat up on a team like the Pirates. And they're the exact team that would get their just their butts handed to them by teams like the White Sox. Maybe the Nationals down the road somewhere, but uh, the White Sox, the Dodgers, the Padres, and then the average teams in the league, it's going to come down to who makes the fewest mistakes in each game. Maybe not necessarily who the best team is or who's performing better than the other one. It's just whoever makes the fewest mistakes. So, uh, it, yeah, they, they do feel like, well, I guess entering last night, they felt like a playoff team only because a lot of teams are really bad. But now with Jack Flaherty down and on the IL for an extended period of time, that's, I mean, it's just such a huge blow, just such a huge blow. And I mean, it definitely puts my, my belief of them being a playoff team in doubt. They're going to have to really, really scramble to cover some innings. Well, you know, if the late summer months roll around and the Cardinals are not going anywhere, you can always fill that time by watching the Snyder Cut. I, I, I would say, if, if 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 you haven't seen it yet, um, yeah, yeah, and, uh, that, and that'll cover four days. Yeah, yeah, that that's a whole series. That's a you, you could wipe out a whole series of Cardinals baseball if you just watch the Snyder Cut over the span of <laughs> a couple nights. Um, and I don't know, maybe I might do that. I might rewatch it if, uh, if the Cardinals <laughs> play warrants it, but you, we've, we've gone almost 50 minutes. I feel as though we should go ahead and move on to the chirp of the week. Um, I know you said you had something you were your modest self is always saying it was going to be, uh, terrible. I think is what you said. I don't believe you. I, I think it's going to be very good. And, and you already you already gave it away a little bit. It's about Nick Plummer, so I, I can't wait to hear it. Tell, tell, tell us what you have. All right, so this is very, very cobbled together, uh, and I'm 95% sure that I'm right, so just keep that in mind. Uh, this is the first any type of like research I've done in like two or three years at this point, uh, so you're going to have to bear with me, but entering today... No, I don't the- like anyone who's sure of themselves. Anyone who's 100% sure of what they're about to say, I, I have no use for you. Yeah, yeah your, your confidence frightens me. I find it terrible uh, and terrifying. Uh, but entering today in 21 games, Nick Plummer was hitting 314 with an on-base percentage of 410 and a slugging percentage of 514. 
And as you and I started talking about chirps of the week, I was like, man, I wonder when the last time Nick Plummer hit was hitting 300 in season. And I thought, well, I guess I'll go back and look. So if I'm doing it right, the last time Nick Plummer was hitting 300 or above during the regular season of minor leagues would have been April 9th, the third game of the 2018 season. So that means nearly all of 2018 and all of 2019, he was never above 300 uh, as a hitter. And it was only for games two and game three of the 2018 season that he hit above 300. So then I thought, well, he's he's a bit of a he. Well, we'll get to the next part here in a second. I wondered what his slugging percentage was. You know, he's he's slugging 514, and I thought, I wonder when the last time Nick Plummer slugged above 500 was, and that would have been in the sixth game of the season of 2019. And that game, in game six, at the end of game six of the 2019 season, he was hitting 188 with a 381 on base percentage and a 500 slugging percentage because he had one home run, one home run and one triple. Uh, if we go back, so that, there's that. And then I wondered, okay, so what was probably the best Nick Plummer had ever been in season? Like, Find a midpoint of the season. Get rid of that first two weeks. When was the best that he had ever been in season? And the best that I could do is on May 15th, or no, May 21st. May 21st of 2017, Nick Plummer was hitting 283 with a robust 433 on base percentage while slugging 472. And... That would have been the 18th game of the season, uh, his 18th game of the season. And that's the growth that Nick Plummer has made in 21 games following a COVID-lost 2020 season. And it's impressive to me that this is where he's at, uh, even without these stats, but now looking at these stats. And then... The other thing I did that's not really part of chirps, but the other outfielder that was highly touted that people had kind of dismissed um, that ended up reinvigorating his stock at Springfield at about, well, Nick Plummer's 24 already, which is crazy, uh, uh, was Oscar Mercado. And Oscar Mercado was 21-22. But when I look back, and I don't have any of the numbers, it was amazing how similar these things were for these two young men. Uh, Mercado never hit for power. It wasn't until he got to Springfield that he hit for power. And Plummer was never a big power guy. But, you know, in 350 at-bats, he'd have eight home runs, uh, which was more than, like, the one or two. Or, like, I think I think Oscar Mercado had, like, two at one point, and one was an inside-the-park home run. Uh, but it was just the, the slash lines, it was all kind of similar uh, with Oscar Mercado and Nick Plummer and how their trajectory led to an eventual major league debut. Um, Mercado was, of course, a little bit different. Uh, he went from being a shortstop to being an outfielder, a center fielder, 
and that allowed him to concentrate on hitting a little bit more, uh, where you could almost argue that Nick Plummer transitioning from center to a corner has allowed him to focus a little bit more on hitting than the amount of ground he has to cover. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. That's that's my chirp of the week. Just a little trip down statistical memory lane with Nick Plummer. Uh, I'm hopeful that your chirp of the week will dig us out of this terrible hole. <laughs> no, that was thank you for that. That was great. I don't even know where you go to. What website uh, gives you these sort of game logs? Uh, I went to Baseball Reference and I I clicked okay. on game by game. Okay, great. And that's good to know. I, I didn't even, I guess I haven't even tried that with minor league players, but it's nice to know that you can do that. Um, thank you very much for that. That was great. Um, and like you said, I also prepared a chirp of the week, and I'm actually going to put you on the spot. It's going to be a quick little oh. game. Um, oh. yeah, so don't don't worry. It, it, I don't think it'll be too, too hard. Uh, but this is the nine-year anniversary of when uh, Johan Santana threw a no-hitter against the Cardinals uh, when he was pitching for the Mets. It was, it was basically the also the nine-year anniversary of the end of Johan Santana's career. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I believe he threw like 135 pitches that night. Uh, yeah. But you know what? When you're, when you're at the age he was at, yeah, just keep pitching and get that no-hitter. There's, there's no reason to yeah. worry about you know, load management or whatever. Um, I'm going to name three pitchers. Two of these pitchers have thrown a no-hitter against the Cardinals, and I want you oh, to God. guess which one has which one has not. First pitcher, Christy Mathewson. Second pitcher, Steve Carlton. Third pitcher, Tom Seaver. I'll say Christy Mathewson. Uh, you are wrong. It's actually Steve Carlton. Uh, ah. Christy Mathewson threw a no-hitter against the Cardinals on July 15th, uh, 1901, in a 5-0 New York Giants victory over the Cardinals. And Tom Seaver, when he was pitching for the Reds, threw a no-hitter against the Cardinals on June 16th, 1978. Steve Carlton, um, I guess it would have been when he was with the Phillies, when he probably pitched the most games against the Cardinals, never threw a no-hitter uh, Against the uh, against the Cardinals, um, for good measure, I'm going to now name three Cardinals pitchers who have thrown a no hitter. No, no, I'm going to name three Cardinals pitchers, two of whom have thrown a no hitter, and I want you to guess which one has not. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Jesse Haynes, <laughs> Dizzy Dean, Diz, Dizzy Dean, and Bob Forsh. <laughs> who was the first one? J- Jesse Haynes. And then Dizzy Dean and Bob Forsh. Uh man, I'm I'm terrible at this game. I'll say uh, I'll say Dizzy Dean. You got it. You got uh, it. Although his his brother his brother uh, Paul Daffy Dean did throw one of the ten Cardinals no hitters. Um, Dizzy Dean never threw a no hitter. Uh, Jesse Haynes threw a no hitter on July seventeenth, two thousand twenty four, against the Boston Braves. That was a five zero Cardinals victory. And Bob Forsh. Threw two no hitters. The first on April sixteenth, nineteen seventy eight, a five another five zero victory for the Cardinals over the Phillies, and he threw another one. The second one on September twenty sixth, nineteen eighty three, uh, against the Expos, and that was a three zero uh, Cardinals victory. And 
Uh, there you have it. There have been nine no-hitters thrown against the Cardinals, and the Cardinals have thrown ten no-hitters of their own. But they have not thrown one since uh, Bud Smith in September of 2001. So we are approaching 20 years um, without a mm-hmm. Cardinals no-hitter. Uh, and um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know who, who on this team is going to throw, who's going to be able to uh, have the pitch count to even uh, make it that long. Uh, but who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll, someone will surprise us and we will see that streak broken very soon. Do you like no-hitters? Yeah, I love great. no-hitters. Yeah, man. I, I love all that baseball stuff. Like when you, you think about it, the dumbest thing on earth is that we celebrate a cycle. And I love a cycle, mm-hmm. right? I love – oh, I love – I love cycles. I don't care. Like, I obviously like a single, a double, and two home runs is better than a single, double, and a triple and a home run. In theory, no, 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 no. I, I the triple's cool. If you can get the cycle, it's way cooler, in my opinion. Um, I, I don't care about you know what actually matters. Uh, a cy- I love a cycle. Uh, if if you're lying down to go to bed and you get an alert on your phone that says some random game, wherever, say it's a West Coast game, we'll assume the Mariners are involved because they're involved in a lot of no-hitters. Usually they're being thrown against them. <laughs> and it tells you that such and such is three outs away from a no-hitter. Do you get up and watch or do you not care at that point? I guess it depends on what version of REM sleep I'm in, but no, I, I will, I'll definitely, I might not try to tune in. You know, it's so hard to find the games now. Uh, it, mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not easy to find them. Sometimes you've got to go on like Reddit to try to find the games or, uh, but anyways, like if I can find it, yeah, I'll throw it on and or hope that MLB or ESPN is, you know, highlighting the last couple innings. But if not, I'll, I'll constantly refresh the MLB app uh, or constantly refresh Twitter and wait to see what happens. Uh, but yeah, I, I'll do some something instead of sleeping to, to stay updated on what's going on in the game. Yeah, I think if it's a perfect game, I'll I'll tune into that thing by the eighth, uh, uh, maybe even the seventh. If I'm if if I'm hearing that there's a perfect game and that uh, a guy's just cruising along and it actually has a chance to happen, a no hitter, I really need to. If it's again two teams I don't care about, I really need it to be that ninth inning. I'm not I'm not putting in. Yeah. 30 minutes of time for this. Uh, but yeah, if it's, if it's the ninth inning and I just lay down and go to bed, I'll get up to, I'll get up to watch those last three outs. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that all these no hitters is taking away some of the specialness of it? Cause I don't, I don't No, not it, like how many have there been? Have there been three, six. I guess I guess I should have known there had been way more than three because we had that we had what that one week where there were two two in a row and then um, another one not that yeah. uh, but no uh, I remember I think it was 1990 when and Fernando Valenzuela threw one against the Cardinals and on the exact same night someone else threw one uh, you know I think this stuff kind of ebbs and flows and yeah it's they're probably going to be no more no hitters now. Because pitchers are better and because just the way, I don't know, there's and more strikeouts. And, 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 yes, yes. There's a lot of teams with bad, bad rosters. That Arizona roster, my goodness, that was a bad roster. Yeah. Uh, that They will 
someone is going to no hit them very soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 uh, but no, I. It's still very hard. I, I would say if you throw a roster of quadruple A guys or even shoot triple A guys into a major league game against a your average starting pitcher, it's not easy to no hit to throw a no hitter. It's not an easy thing to do. And so I, I, I enjoy I almost enjoy the sloppy no hitters better than like the good ones. Um, yeah. Like when Edwin Jackson threw that no hitter but walked like ten batters, that yeah. to me was a thing of beauty. Uh, maybe it's because I like Edwin Jackson. Uh, I don't know. I feel like AJ Burnett had a similar no hitter uh, yeah. one time An- when he was. Annabelle with, uh, Sanchez, was like I Marlins think, had one too that was like ten walks or something like that. Yeah, and it, I, I love it especially when um, you know Roy Holiday, uh, rest in peace. He he was one of the greatest pitchers of the last twenty years. Um, Shoot, at, at his at his height, I almost feared him more than I like a pitcher like Clayton Kershaw or, or whatever. Him throwing a no hitter, like when he did it in that playoff game, was awesome because it was a playoff game. But yeah, it's also Roy Holiday. You know, he's a great pitcher. I love it when a guy who is not that great of a pitcher um, has that moment um, because you, you, there's a very good chance they're not going to have many more big great moments at that level, let alone throwing a no hitter. Like yeah. I can't even, I can't think of the White Sox pitcher who threw a perfect game like 10 years ago. Uh, I already forgot the guy's name, but uh, because he's been out of baseball now for a while, but he threw one of the, however many perfect games there are less than what, 25. I, I yeah. don't even know how many there perfect games are. You know, yeah, I'm going to look that up right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, or you think about Armando Galarraga who, you know, goes within one yes. umpire call uh from throwing a perfect game you know it's those magical moments Mm -hmm. i'm with you i i I love it all uh there have been 23 perfect games i just looked that up and uh at least with armando galarraga is it kind of turned into a nice like he people remember he didn't get forgotten people remember him well and it stinks that it happened to occur a few years before replay was a thing and would have uh changed that but it could have been worse. Yeah. He's still, I feel, I feel it's known that he faced 27 batters and he got all 27 out. Minus it, uh, that, that was, that was Jim Joyce, right? Am I wrong about that? The, uh, Jim, you are not wrong. It was Jim Joyce. I think it was the 2010 season. Um, if I'm remembering that correctly, I could be wrong. Jim Joyce, who also, uh, was known as a pretty good manager. And I think like, Either later that year, remember he like saved a guy's life who who I think he that, gave that someone like sounds CPR. Familiar. Yeah, and then and then he was the the umpire in the middle of the obstruction call with Middle Brooks and Alan Craig in game I guess three of the 2013 World Series. Yeah, uh, and and he nailed that call uh, yeah. from the moment it happened. Um, so he's he's a very good umpire. Just happened to. Uh, missed that one, and he he more than made up for it. He he felt awful about it as anyone would, I think. Uh, one more thing, uh, just going back to yeah. my little quick chirp. Oh no, keep going, and, and then we'll get uh, the other thing about the Nick Plummer stuff is there's yeah. only been one one game this year that he entered the day with a batting average below 300. So that would mean in 20 of the 21 days. 
he is he's been at 300. And I could be wrong about this one. This is this is not un, this is an uneducated guess. This is just me uh, going through my research, uh, and it's something that I, I will eventually look up and maybe maybe tweet about uh, when we retweet the the podcast. But I actually think that there's a chance that in the 21 games this year, he's been above 300 or above for 20 of those 21 games, and I think that that is more games than he's been above or at 300 in his career leading up to this uh, this point in his career. Oh wow! I I, I want to say it's really close. Just you know, so what what you do on the uh, yeah the Baseball Reference Finder is you click on the first game and then you click on the second game and it populates what the total is, and then you click on the third game and it populates what the total is, and then you click on the fourth and you do that until you get to 120 games or whatever, uh, and just. Just thinking about how often I saw 300, uh, I man, I bet it's it's right there. I bet it's really close to to you know him being above 300 as many games as many days uh, in 2021 as he's been in his entire minor league career. Well, good for him. That yeah. makes me happy. And I'll, I'll tell you what else makes me happy um, because Tara Wellman is out. I think she might be getting married this weekend. I'm remembering correctly, uh, but uh, which is awesome. Great yeah. for Tara. Congratulations, Tara. Uh, but because she's out, uh, Daniel Shaptaw is the one. Because no way do I know how to do any of this stuff. Uh, Shaptaw is the one editing this podcast, uh, and so we've gone almost an hour and ten minutes, um, sort of just to get uh, put more work on Shaptaw's plate. I think so. But I told him no one wants an edited Kyle Reese. We want the we want the raw feed, so uh, yeah. hopefully he doesn't have too much work on his hands, and he just throws it up there. So we'll we'll see what we'll see what product we get if we get the uh, if we get the you know the one you can show in theaters <laughs> version or the uh, apple pie hump. <laughs> uh, yeah, if I know Shoptal, he'll probably just cut me out, and it'll be the first five minute episode of Chirps. <laughs> Uh, um, let's see. It's uh, almost ten o'clock. Cardinals game is actually about to start. Do you have anything else? To, anything else you want to add? No, no. Uh, just if if you're near a minor league town or you're taking a vacation near a minor league town, go watch minor league baseball. Uh, sure, a lot of the major league owners now kind of have a larger thumbprint on the minor league organizations that are affiliated with their their major league club. But just know that those towns uh, and also those owners of those minor league teams really, really rely on tourists uh, and locals to to help support their product. Um, and the, the last thing is they contracted minor league baseball and they started paying minor leaguers more. Uh, but the situation in which they're living in hasn't gotten any better. And part of that is because minor league baseball isn't allowing host families because of COVID time. Uh, but part of it is because major league baseball uh, knows that they can get away with it because the publicity isn't on them right now, as it was a year ago, um, two years ago. So just, you know, I'll tweet out any information that I have follow uh, advocates for minor league baseball, follow, Follow anyone you can to try to gain as much knowledge about the fact that, you know, sure, minor league players are making a little bit more money now, uh, but their living expenses have actually gone through the roof. Uh, their 
their salary might be higher than it's ever been, but they're not actually taking home any more money. And they're continuing, they're continuing to get mistreated by organizations. And they are all scared to talk about it because they're all worried it's going to hurt their chances in the long run. I, I can speak to that firsthand uh, on multiple occasions, uh, not just one person. It, it's multiple people, multiple family members of players that I've talked to. Uh, and I know it's kind of a downer to end this on, but it's like, just don't no. forget. And at the same time, if you're that person, and I look, I respect the troops, uh, all that. But if you're that person who your thing is to slide in, I, I know all that. How dismissive can you be after you say I respect something? I, I just did. Uh, but if if your thing is to slide in and say, you know, soldiers are treated worse, or uh, and they don't complain, or uh, you know, military life is 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 worse than that. Like the mil- the soldiers would be grateful to get a meal like that or live like that. Uh, I'm just gonna block you. I- I've never blocked people until recently, and that's that's yeah. just what I'm doing. Uh, don't be that douchebag. Like, if you want to tweet about it in a way to make bring awareness to the fact that troops are also mistreated, I'm fine with that. Troops are mistreated. Actually, being a soldier is kind of the shittiest thing a person can go through. Uh, but uh, aside from that, like, let's not say that, oh, this side's got it worse than this other side. These two sides have it pretty freaking bad. Uh, maybe support that other side. Maybe use the fact that you're both being mistreated to support each other uh, I- instead of being a douchebag. So that's uh, that's it. That was the last thing I wanted to end on. And uh, hopefully when we get back to normal, minor leaguers can get treated like human beings instead of indentured servants. No, totally. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you're beating this drum. Uh, it's funny you even brought this up because just today, uh, for for Father's Day, I was going to take my uh, five-year-old son to the Nats-Mets game, uh, which uh, it was going to be a one o'clock, the first of a, of a seven-inning uh, doubleheader. Um, and once everything got calculated in, tickets for two people were going to be $120. And I was like, you right. know, that's probably more money I need to spend for uh, two teams that I'm not really a fan of either of them. Um, and it's a seven-inning game, which, believe me, when you go with a five-year-old, you're not staying nine innings anyway. But just on principle, it seems like a lot of money for a seven-inning game. So instead, I went to the... Bowie Bay Sox website, and I got two tickets for a Bowie Bay Sox. They are the Double uh, A affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles, and they are playing the Akron Rubber Ducks on that same day. Um, and so instead, I am going to be going to a uh, Bowie Bay Sox and Akron Rubber Ducks game in Bowie, Maryland, with my son. And as you can guess, a fraction of the cost. They had this fun thing where like the think of the first 50 people the first 50 dads there get like a world's greatest dad t-shirt or, <laughs> or something insane um uh and i'm very much looking forward to it uh so yes uh not only support your minor league baseball because they need it but also support it because it's a great product as well and uh, you know Major League Baseball will always be there, almost always be there. Uh, but you never know when that minor league team might jump ship for another town or whatever. And so it's it's a very accessible product. It's a very affordable product. 
um, especially if you have kids uh, that are my age, um, they enjoy it just as much as they do uh, almost a you know major league game. So if not more so because of all the fun things they have going on. So yes, absolutely, keep supporting those minor league teams. Awesome. Well, also, and and I know a lot of minor league teams have crazy names and it's gotten a lot of hand but akron rubber ducks that's a awesome name yes because of the throwback to that to the rubber factory all that that's a very solid name i love it yeah well I hope that's you have a great, i'll be anxious to hear about it but I, I hope you have a great time that's that's awesome yeah yeah well i'll, I'll let you know if i'm able to get secure one of those t-shirts <laughs> uh <laughs> um, and we'll see but anyway kyle thank you so much for jumping on uh, this has been a great time, as I knew it would be, because you are a fantastic guest, full of wonderful knowledge and just other great anecdotes that you are always fun to uh, shoot the breeze with. So thank you very much. Um, I'd ask you, um, where can we find your work and tell us your Twitter, but I know you would just say, um, don't follow me on Twitter, but that's a lie. You should follow Kyle on Twitter. It's Kyle Reese something. I don't know. Type it in. You'll find it. Um and that's all. Do you it's, have anything you want to say it's before we go? At, it's at Kyle Reese something. Uh, and <laughs> you can spell it any way you like. So, yeah, that's uh, th yeah, that's it. Follow that person. Well, I, I have been enjoying your bit. Uh, your I, too, am and fill in the blank. That's, that's, been a, that's been a good bit. Solid bit. I've enjoyed it. I'm embarrassed. I, 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 I was expecting to see I, too, have an oblique strain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a strained oblique, but usually, usually they're a little more lighthearted than that. We, we don't want to poke fun at uh, an injury, especially when it's a Jack Flaherty and that could dash our playoff hopes. Anyway, Kyle, you're awesome. Thank you for being here. You are too, brother. Thank you so much. I, I love talking it over with you. Absolutely. This has been episode 109 of Chirps Podcast. I think we're going to have Ben Hockman on next week to talk about his book. So, yeah, check that out. And... Go Cardinals, I guess. Congrats, Tara. <laughs> yes, and congrats, Tara. Very much. Congrats, Tara. Way to go, Tara. <laughs> See you all. Talk to you later. Bye.